This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Um, I think the final topic before we change the format and do the uh, Yisraeli Torah um, would, is going to be Bez Hashem Chinuch. Before that, um, as usual, if I find something interesting, I'd like to share it with people. I'll try to be as brief as possible. Two articles I wanted to share. Um, one of them somebody sent me in, a listener sent me in. Um, the first one is off a science called Live Science. And basically, it's, it's a report that's been other places. I simply got it off this site. Um, scientist, um, the professor in Haifa University, um, and archaeologist Yosef Goffinkel of the University of Jerusalem, and Professor Galil, Professor of Biblical Studies at the University of Haifa in Israel, found a text that seems to set back the dating of the uh, Tanakh four centuries. Uh, I will read the important line. Scientists have discovered the earliest known Hebrew writing, an inscription mm-hmm. dating from the 10th century BC during the period of King David's reign. The breakthrough could mean that portions of the Bible were written centuries early than previously thought. The Bible's Old Testament is thought to have first been written down in an ancient form of Hebrew. Um, until now, m- many scholars held that the Bible originated in the 6th century because Hebrew writing was thought to stretch back no further. But the newly deciphered Hebrew text is about 4 centuries older, science announced this month. Um, what I get out of an article like this is the understanding of how fragile Lora Inu is. In other words, the, the, how do we know there was no Hebrew writing for centuries early? They, they, they didn't, um, no one ever came to a plaque that says today, 600 BC, we have established Hebrew writing, and from now on we're going to do Hebrew writing. There just is an absence of writing before, um, a, a, a guess, an extrapolation, that's very, very tenuous um, evidence to build a case on. If you've got nothing else to go on, so you use it as a guess. But here's a case where, quote-unquote, scientists were sure that before the 6th century BC there was no Hebrew writing, and now they find something four centuries earlier than that. So much of the evidence, quote-unquote, against Bible's negative evidence, we haven't found this, we haven't found this, we haven't found this, and... Um, you find. So I just wanted to use it more as an example rather than um, using it as proof to anything. Just want to show how tenuous the dating was. You know, it's when archaeologists have dated the Bible to the 6th century BC, it's based on the fact that they haven't found any early writings. The assumption is that it was too, prim- too early to have this form of sophisticated writing and so on and so forth. Those are assumptions and not in any sense, positive evidence of proof. A second article is off Slate. This, um, a listener uh, uh, sent this to me. It's called The Spectator, The Dangerous Mysteries of Consciousness by Ron Rosenbaum. We still need answers. Now, the basic thrust of his article is that what consciousness is is not explained by science. And that's an old, piece, it's an old idea, and that's not the piece I found interesting. But um, he does speak very strongly about the three or four major issues 
that science um, does not address, cannot address, um, and sweeps under the rug. He quotes Richard Dawkins, and he, he proclaims himself as an agnostic slash atheist, doesn't consider himself religious in any sense of the word, but he takes issue with what he calls um, w what he calls the sort of sweeping over the rug and almost religious fanaticism of the atheist. He quotes a passage from Richard Dawkins' The Blind Watchmaker. Cumulative selection, once it has begun, seems powerful enough to make the evolution of intelligence probable, if not inevitable. That's the quote. And now he comments, seems powerful enough? doesn't sound very scientific. It sounds, in fact, like faith-based overconfidence in science. An admission that we have no answer, just hope that one will develop. Just as many religious types hope for the coming of the Messiah in a fiery apocalypse. So, in fact, Dawkins' all-too-causal, almost dismissive language here offers a rare admission of a big open question. The fact that neither he nor his theory has yet to find a scientific explanation of it. Even to agree of a definition of consciousness. Then he goes through consciousness, um, and then he has another point about the beginning of life and the beginning of matter, which I would like to quote. He, um, he, he uh, writes about um, beginning of life, uh, try to quote the piece over here. Um, first of all, beginning of matter. It, it, um, first, why is there something rather than nothing? And secondly, what exactly is the crucial difference in non-living and living entities? Those are the two questions that he feels science has not been able to answer at all. Ever since Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, became a bestseller, and despite the fact that he now admits he was wrong about his entire theory of black holes in that book, many physicists would have us believe that string theory, or M-theory as it's now most fascinatingly called, explains why there's something rather than nothing. One of the latest fashionable theories of why there is something rather than nothing is called quantum tunneling, which seems to posit that being came into being by means of insubstantial equations or quantum fluctuations in a vacuum. Sorry guys, but if there are fluctuations in it, then there's something in it already. It's not nothing, if you see what I mean. In other words, <laughs> whatever you'll tell me they are, and these, these uh, insubstantial equations and quantum equations, vacuum, that is a something. Don't tell me that something came in through nothing because you have these things. That is a something. <coughs> the final big three unsolved mystery, pinpointing the very beginning of life. I'm satisfied that winning theory can explain everything from the evolution of the very first living entity from a single soul to Nabokov. Um, and we've had our issues with that. Uh, that's a pathetically mark of mine. But... I've yet to see any persuasive explanation of the jump from no life to, li to life and how it came about. Please don't refer me to that discredited old chestnut of an experiment in which an electric current was run through a soup of organic molecules and some amino acids were found. Amino acids are chemicals, not life, and ceaseless attempts to create life, to manipulate those amino acids in such a way that they start replicating involving in a beaker one way or another have failed, as Berlinski painstakingly demonstrated. Berlinski is a very interesting person. He seems to be a brilliant person. He's written a lot, a lot of books. David Berlinski. He's Jewish, um, not believer in Torah, Kofer in science, 
and he writes on all sorts of fascinating topics. It's interesting. You can you you can read his books. But at any rate, I just wanted. I, I feel very strongly those points are made very well. Slate is not a religious um, site, to the best of my knowledge, and uh, it, it the points are very well made and very strong. And uh, I just wanted to share with you. Yes. So again, let's just go over the two articles we did and both main points. The first one was an article about uh, the the, uh, uh, the that the archaeologists and professors have now are now proceeding to update the Bible to being four centuries earlier, based on the fact that they found found a piece of Hebrew writing, um, which shows that the evidence for all of the other theories was simply the lack of something. The second article here that I had from Slate, he pinpoints two or three very important points. He <laughs> says that science has failed to answer the basic, some very basic fundamental points, and when they and the attitude of scientists is kind of a belief almost akin to religion. The first is where things come from, and you know where where existence comes from rather than non-existence, and the things that I've said are, are I mean, are just ways of wriggling out, you, you, you know, whatever fancy words you'll use, at the end of the day you're talking about something. Um, secondly, about the, the, you know, putting electric currents and getting amino acids is great. Amino acids are not living things. It's like, it's like saying that if you can, you know, if you can make a dog, you can make a living being. Um, amino acids are the building blocks, but they're not, they don't have life, and none of it, and, and none of it is living in any sense of the word. Uh, those are the points that he makes, and also the concept of consciousness, which is awareness, is something that um, he finds to be an absolute mystery, and that is correct also. Okay, so let's go back, let's go with our general topic, which was going to be Chinuch. Um It's very difficult to talk about Chinuch because first of all, I don't have any expertise on Chinuch. I mean, I have expertise, or let's put it this way, experience, in a very specific area. I've been teaching certain age people, and um, for better or worse, definitely that's where my experience lies. And uh, Chinuch is a huge topic. I don't uh, really have answers to very specific issues, but I'd like to map out some general sense of things that I have, um, I think, sensed over the years. And uh, I would ask people to use their own judgment, to look around, and uh, if the ideas seem to make sense, then they'll be helpful. If not, uh, use the sense that Sam gave you and ask your rebellion and so on. The first thing is um, the understanding that Chinuch is a multi-layered process. I, I would like to use um, I, I would like to use Rambam or Rebbeinah Bechaya they both make this point in different places. The Rambam in Moronavuchim says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took out Kalei in a roundabout way and because, and you find a lot of times HaKadosh Baruch Hu does things roundabout because the purpose of Torah mitzvahs is to change the person. <coughs> Sudden, extraordinary changes do not affect the person. It's the same way that y you can take a tree and sort of by putting slight pressure on it, cause it to grow in a certain way. But if you put an axe to it, you, you, you will make the shape you want at the price of the tree. Kadosh wants the person to change, and the way to do it needs a process and gradual. 
Rabbeinu Bechayah says, HaKadosh Baruch revealed himself to Moshe. He did it in a four-step process. First there was a fire, which is a natural phenomenon, but it was burning unnaturally. Then there was a Malach, then there was HaKadosh Baruch and so on. Those, in, in other words, HaKadosh Baruch wanted the human being to incorporate and take in the Ruchnius of Torah and it should become a real part of himself. It's a process. And the, um, a, a person developing is, goes through different stages and therefore <coughs> it is, um, it, it's important to recognize that Chinuch is needs an understanding of what is the purpose of this stage, this stage, this stage, and this stage. Um, secondly, every child is different. We spoke about different shvachim <coughs> and the fact that different people have different uh, goals in life, aspirations in life, and um, they are things that are important to take into account. Uh, there are some basic things that apply to everybody. <coughs> Goodness, kindness, uh, self-discipline, and so on are basics, and they apply straight across the board. But each child, as he gets older, will have more and more of his unique uh, personality come out, and it's important to understand and to be sensitive to that. The first is sowed before the person has made one step in Chinuch, is to recognize that a person starts with one count against himself, and that is his own negius. Um, when we're raising a child, we definitely feel that we're doing everything for the good of the child. But there's a subtle um, Yetzirah, which goes as follows. My child is my child. Um, if, if, you know, Goldstein's, you know, Goldstein's son is not only a reflection on himself, but he reflects on Goldstein. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu is Ben Amram. He's not only Moshe Rabbeinu, he's Ben Amram. <coughs> so, when I am being Mechanech a child, I many times will project what I would like to be perceived as. Who I would like people to refer to. People say, it's obvious that if, that if my child is a brilliant Hamad Chacham, people will say, oh, must be a, a son of, uh, of his father's. If he is a very good person, then people will say, oh, it's a son of this. If he's not performing well, people will say, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, I found in, in over years, people who are happy and satisfied with where they are in life, tend to be easier with their children. People who are dissatisfied with where they are in life are unusually harsh with their children because they want their children to compensate for that which they are not. So if the person himself is not the great Talmud Chacham that he thought he would be, and he said to himself, you know, if only I'd memorized all of Mishnayis by the age of 12, I would be like the best guy in Yeshiva, and I'd be Rosh Yeshiva today. So boom, my son is going to do it. And the father really feels he's doing for the son's good because his good and the son's good are one and the same. I wished I had learned Mishnahis when I was 12. I wished I had done this. I wished I would be this. I wished that today I would be the God Lador and everybody would be saying, wow, 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 God Lador. So I translate that to my child. And, and you know, so, and it's very even, it's even hard to convince a parent that 
the child that's it's not really the child's good it wasn't even good for him to have to learn Mishnahis at the age because he couldn't have done it so, so the Yitzhahara the, the Yitzhahara that comes dressed as a Yitzhatov is if Ruchnius is wonderful and being successful in Ruchnius is, is the best success so at all costs my child will succeed to realize the dream that I want him to realize that is the Yitzhahara that dresses up as Yitzhatov and that's why it's very important to be aware of it. <coughs> when I'm annoyed, it, 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 it's some, when I'm annoyed, it, it works both ways. If a child is not like his parent, the father is very musically gifted, the child is not. Or vice versa, the father is very academic, and the child is a very musical and sensitive person. And th- th- there's a lack of recognition that his world is different and his success is going to be different. And I try to put on, I try to make a left-handed person right-handed. Not very good. The other side is, when a child is too much like a parent, and he's got, and let's say he's clumsy, like the father is, and the father took him 25 years to get over his clumsiness, and he's finally a little bit of dwarf, and he can sort of be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, he can function in society without being left at, when he sees his son's clumsiness, it brings him back 25 years ago, and he lets out a lot of his anger and frustration. Understand that tishtus akvulos, the Gemara says a person is not jealous of a child because a person identifies with the child. So if the child is God Lador, I'm the father of God Lador, and that, you know, mysteriously, I, with a mysterious smile, I indicate that it's my genes and my training and my, I'm a Tzadik Nista, but my son is a Tzadik Nigla. That's kind of there on the table. And it's important before we talk about anything else to bear in mind that that will be a factor in determining <coughs> how successful we are and how good we are. The different stages of a child psychologists develop in, in, you know, the vitamin <coughs> stages. I, I just like to share kind of um, uh, uh, feelings as a parent and as somebody who's at least been around schools. The first stage in life of a child is an imprinting of what is normal, right, and so on. I once heard from a from psychologist a very, very good definition he said, the Gemara says that you should learn by Yikra with small children because you vote to Horim, the Yaskubit, Taharos, that because they're pure, they should be all sake in pure things. So he explained there's an age, there are, there's an age when a child is absorbing his picture of the world. And there's the question why, why do we eat with a fork and a knife? doesn't occur to a five or six-year-old except to annoy his parents but his, his real his, his mindset is this is what you do this is how things are done this is the world around me and it's obvious that that's the first that's the first stage present development is to absorb what's there um, so Kachim Vayikra can't be understood in any terms of a rational process the, the why of Vayikra doesn't lend itself to anything Tuma and Tara, Kodesh and Tomei, Kosher and, and Treif, those are all realities, Ruchnistic realities that have to be embedded as such. Um, a child doesn't need the explanation, but whatever the picture that he picks up is going to be his picture of the Matthias. A Shabbos table is extremely important to a child because um, it's a sense of things. Even when people strain, if they have the, one of the biggest factors that will draw them back 
to Yiddishkeit is because their gyroscope has been set that Shabbos is a time to sit around the table to sing Zmiris and it's different. He, 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 may, he, he may be driven away from it if it's harsh, if it's bitter, if it's difficult. But understand that the process of giving a child the picture of the way things are is the earliest stage of his life. And that's why um, you don't have to push him, but the picture, the, pr- the excitement for preparing for Pesach, the, the, the cleaning the house, the, the, the having the fresh matzahs, the, 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 the um, Shabbos, the, the Dvar Torah, all, all of the things are things that are, they're not teaching him how, but it's becoming his Metzius. It, does, it doesn't need a philosophy. He needs just to experience it, to experience it as normal, as, as you know, when a father will say, you know, Shabbos, I just don't do it. It's not Shabbostic. For the rest of his life, the kid can be Mechal Shalsa Hesach Manatzan. He's not going to, he may not go on a bicycle on Shabbos because the father said it's not Shabbostic. It's crazy. You find things like that because there's a the clear sense of right and wrong as a Metzius is put in that age. And the child needs to participate. And, and that's why the more these things are prominent, if a person stays home Pesach instead of goes away to a hotel, if a person prepares the house for Pesach, those activities go very well into, if, 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 if somebody knocks on the door and you always open up and you always give tzedakah, you, you know, the, the child takes it as a granted that when there's a knock on the door, you have to open and you should give tzedakah. If it's done with an annoying face, the child registers this as an annoyance in life. If it's done matter-of-factly, <coughs> all of those things will become <coughs> registered in the child. He can change, he can, he can different, but understand that that's the first process. At the same time, there are two very, very important, um, important <coughs> attitudes, I guess, that are going to be happening, um, that are starting at this age and will continue to the next stage. Yes. Let's say pull five six, just to throw out again. I'm just throwing out a number, but kind of let's say pull five six is this is this is the primary process, um, and that's why you should not laugh at all the stuff they do in the kindergartens and 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 the and the songs and and the niceness. It, it understand that the child is really absorbing it, and um, even the picture of a shamus table. If there are things, if if we don't talk about sports or we don't talk about lashon and we don't talk about this. You know, the, the child senses the differences, the quality, and so on and so forth. There are two more things that I think are very important in this stage and follows through the next stage. One is, we make a bracha, roka ha'aretz al ha'moyim, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu plants the ground firmly on an ocean bed. I never really made this bracha with a lot of kavana. Um, it's hard, you know, I mean, uh, Azokhev, food from Rachman and family, see people are bent and this and that and Pokech, Ivrim. Those, those are all, Rokhartal of Moyim goes back 6,000 years ago. My memory is short. But I was once in an earthquake in Yerushalayim. Not, it wasn't a terribly big earthquake, but I remember vividly I was laying, I was like midday and I was kind of lying down, I was napping. And all of a sudden I wake up, I feel somebody shaking my bed. And I get up and the bed is shaking itself and my wife's bed shaking, and I can hear the washing machine clattering, and, and, and for a minute it, it struck me, it's an earthquake, and, and, and I was scared, I was scared because nothing to hold on to. It's hard to explain, when you slip, you, you grip to hold on to something, 
when there's nothing to hold on to, it's the most frightening feeling in the world. Then, 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 then what is safe? Where, where, where is the point of stability? A child needs a plant. They tell you that when you uproot a plant at too early of an age, the trauma kills the plant. A, a, the child needs a sense of stability. There are things in the world that are immutable. The most basic is the family. And that's why when a family splits up, a, a child suffers the ability to settle down himself. It, because marriage is not permanent. So what is permanent? Tati and mommy should be the most permanent things in his life. Stability in the sense that the parents are home most of the time. And, you know, and, and again, there are, there are things in life that, that you know, some people's time also requires their way for months at a time and so on. But understand, the real need is a sense of consistency, stability, regularity. Those are extremely important for the child. He needs to feel there are things in the world that are solid. It creates in himself a sense of stability, consistency, and so on. Um, it means also locating, relocating from city to city, place to place. And obviously at the early years when the child is up to four or five, it's not really, that's not really the issue. But from four or five onwards, that those type of things become an issue. Um, new friends, new place, new location, new house, it takes a toll. Um, none of this is absolutely ruins the child, but understand the needs, understand where the toll is. So there's a stability in the sense of the inherent family structure. The father and mother are there for each other. There's no doubt that they will be there. There's no doubt that they're there in his life on a constant basis. And as he gets older, his environment is a consistent environment. Those are very important. There's one more vital ingredient, and that is his father's support for him and desire for him is a constant. In other words, um, the father is um, the father is there. He never rejects the child. He likes the child and, and um, believes in him and holds of him and so on and so forth. That's, and that's, again, that's like from four or five onwards. Um, at an earlier age, physical contact is important, but emotional contact. No matter how bad the kid comes home with a 40 on a test, and the father <coughs> says, okay. So the attitude could be, you idiot, you stupid. It could be, you didn't work hard enough. Had you studied the way I told you to, it would have been good, and so on and so forth. Or you could say, okay, 40 on a test is not great. Let's figure out how we get around it. There's never the issue that I'm doubting the child, but we're planning how to move forward. I think if we cut out this, we'd have more time to study and we'd be able to do better than that, and so on and so forth. It, and it takes a lot because, like we said before, a father puts all his hopes in a child, and uh, it's, it's, it's very hard when it's disappointing, especially on an issue that's important to you. For one father, it's the basketball team. For one father, it's, it's the test. For another father, it's something else. Those are important that the child sense the consistency of the father's belief in him. One of the reasons that makes turning to HaKadosh Baruch Hu so, so comforting for us is that we believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu's faith in us and Ahav of us is unwavering. And no matter how bad or how negligent, how stupid we've been, he'll be there. Um, the child needs to feel that from the father. Another element in that, in that same realm is 
I inevitably, one of the children is a star performer, cuter, or whatever it is makes them a lot more likable and adorable than the other children. It's hard, a child senses it, and it's hard to hide it. But um, every child can have time for himself and his father, whether it's taking a walk, whether it's learning with him specially. He needs to feel that there's a father that is uniquely his. He needs to feel that his father is as proud of his achievements as the older one. Um, and you can say, uh, listen, so-and-so, uh, you know, he's got the ability to do math better. He's got a way of getting homage down quickly. But I'm proud of how well you're doing. And in time, you're not going to be less of a Tom Chachem. Or in your area, you'll do as well. You have to be honest. But you have to give to understand that what you admire is what the person is creating and making of himself. And you should not overwhelm the gifted, capable, better child, cuter child, with affection and so forth. You can compliment him and say, I'm very proud of you, the 100 test. I know that, you know, you, you, you put work in besides just, you know, being a, um, if the child is cuter, you have to you have to be aware you can't sit and play with him because everyone else's eyes are going out um, and you need to have some sort of sensible balance for it um, so the first so the first kufa is the kufa of imprinting things on a child we also have the importance of stability and that varies in age stability of simply the parents structure being there the home and the sense of a father and him having a unique bond each and every child having his own bond. Um, that's a very, very important. The next phase, as a child goes from, let's say, 5, 6 to 12, 13, um, understand that the child at that point, his main motivation is um, to do well in the eyes of his parents and authorities and so on. His world is, is dominated by um, authority, uh, parental approval, disapproval. He doesn't have a sense of self. If the father thinks he's bad, then he's bad. Um, he, he functions well, and that's why kids this age can be like angels, the angelic period, because their whole metzius is to be sort of, um, to find favor in the eyes of the parents, the Rebbe, society, and so on. Um, and understand the power that you have simply in complementing what's good and what's not good uh, and, and you know because that's really what the kid is going to be doing um, when a person needs to disapprove l let me l let's explain something um, we get angry and we, we let the child students know what we do and it seems to be pretty justified in our eyes. But understand that when you're at the receiving end of anger, it's amplified a hundred times. You hear it as, listen, this kid snuck up behind the other kid and, I don't know, splashed him with ink, pushed a pencil into his ear, or who knows what else he did. Bad, did bad. When you come to the kid and you say, you monster, yeah, you mushkas, there was no reason for it, and so on and so forth. From an objective point of view, from the point of view of the bench of the judge, um, it's, 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 a, it's a fair evaluation of what happened. The kid, his world is being dashed. 
um, it's correct. It, it, it's um, it, it's correct to let the child know how bad it is, but understand that his perception of bad is he, the way he hears you is a hundred times louder than what you're saying. It's like um, you know w when sometimes you make a mistake and you, you know when when you have a radio or something like that and you put in earphones and it sounds much louder than it's broadcasting because the volume through earphones comes up much louder than through loudspeaker or vice versa. It's, it's not pushed at all. The child hears you a hundred times over. He hears that he's a monster, that he's worthless, that there's no good in him, that you now consider him to be whatever it is. Seichel is not a valuable tool to say, well, he should understand better. He, he can't and will not understand better. Be angry at him and you can give him Musa, but you can tell him, you know, an accent like that, it, the tone of voice should be firm, it should, it, it, should, it should be saying something, you know, and you could, say, you could tell him, these are actions that have absolutely no place in our world. It's something that's hurtful to somebody else, and you don't even have a reason for doing it, I consider absolutely, um, you, you, know, un, you know, unwarranted, innocent, and so on and I expect better, and you will be better, something like that. When you let loose with the full vengeance with a Jeremiah, you are over killing, and you're doing one or two things. Either the kid, it's like when you play extraordinarily loud music, or a, f or, or a smell that's way too strong, you either will ruin the kid's hearing, or he'll just filter it out. When you come down hard, once you reach the threshold, not threshold, the ceiling, of what the child's capable of, of, of absorbing, he will either immunize himself from it, learn how to not listen to you, or um, <coughs> he will be crushed totally. So you don't gain anything. You need you need to respond and to respond sincerely to it. But your choice of words and power should be limited to what a child. And it's very easy. Picture yourself in that situation. Let's say um, let's say you're a fairly honest person, this and that. And you once decided to take a little bit of an extra break on taxes, where um, the law says you shouldn't exactly. So you cheated on, on a few hundred dollars worth of taxes by sort of considering something exempt and you shouldn't. Imagine you're caught. So you, you would like the person to say, you know, you've been doing your taxes fairly. You're a reasonable person. I think you're an honest person. This really wasn't something you should have done. It, it, it was like a little bit over the line, and I expect you to comply a lot better. Where if the person says, you thief, you're pretending to be an honest person, and when my back is turned this and that, you're going to react not with contrition. You'll either be devastated or you will lash back. Understand that the level of, of, of how you're responding should be measured by the macabre, not by the no-say. Okay, so we have a tkuf in life when parental approval is very important, and that's why... So when a kid comes home with with a bad report card, he's not so successful in school, you can say, well, l let's, you know, um, I really see that you do your work and you're having a lot of dismiss. Let's try to prioritize. Let's try to say what's more important in this stage. Work with the child and understand that you're behind him, you hold of him. And again, where it wants, it, it want is wanted. Where it's not wanted, it's not wanted. But it's very important because that's the maker or breaker. The next coup in life, is the harder one, it's the hardest one, and that is a teenager. From the age 12, 13, to 
the age 20, and again, just putting out a rough number, the child is breaking away from his house. It's a pashik. To be able, if a child were to remain the same type of child that he was in the earlier age, he could never form his own family. He'd be a mommy's boy or tati's boy, consciously, subconsciously, whatever it is. Powerful forces begin to work in him to break him away from home. Um, and the, it's, like, it's like when you lose, for those who remember what it was like to lose your milk teeth, the tooth starts irritating you. Not hurting, but it's kind of, you want to push it, you want to pull it. It's moving. You want to twist it. You want to turn it. You don't even know why, but you want to get rid of that tooth. And, and, you know, it's not, not, a, not a pain or anything, just kind of annoying. And you're trying to get out of it and push it and pull it till it's out of your mouth. That's the same thing that goes through a child in, in the other years. It can go many directions. And the healthiest way is a child goes to yeshiva. He all of a sudden finds a yeshiva who's the Godladar. And, or he finds a shita or a derech or a rebbe or, or, or personal aspirations of godless. And in his mind, his parents seem inadequate. He, you know, his parents aren't quite chasher, they aren't quite gedolim, they aren't this, they aren't that. He's going to be a chasnesh, he's going to be a biskarav, he's going to be this, he's going to be that, the other thing. Um, it's, uh, or, he, he will go the other direction. He's not going to be from, he's not going to be this, he's not that. All of them are coming from the same shorish. The best thing a parent can do for a child that age is to provide those role models that will be very positive. Let it, 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 it's the age when children make quantum leaps, just like physically. They, they're kind of weird. They all of a sudden grow and they look like long sticks, uh, pimpled all over and, and not quite proportional because in the process of growth, uh, beauty, it's not the final form, the balance is not there and you get all sorts of uh, erratic spurts of growth. Something happens emotionally. To expect a teenager to be reasonable, to expect him to be reasonable, is wrong. You want him to be idealistic, you want to be striving, you want to be excited, you want to be inspired. And it can, go, it can be frumish tussim, it can be fryish tussim, it can be shtussim, period. But they're all part of that picture. Um, and the most important thing is to provide an environment where the child will have something to reach out to, he'll be inspired, it'll be goals that are attainable, He's in a yeshiva where he could become the lamdan of the yeshiva. It's not too big on him. It's, n- it's not too small on him. Um, I once read an extraordinary insightful story. My wife's uncle was a person named Chaim Zev Finkel. He, he was a brother of my shver, Rebbeinish. And um, he was the older brother. He was the mashkiach Mir. He was an extraordinary personality. A big tzaddik. Tremendous baki and adrashim and extraordinary perceptive, perceptive person. He had a yeshiva in Tel Aviv, which was not as bad as it is but it was n- very far from a Torah environment. He had a yeshiva, and he had a son, Rebari Finkel, so they were yeshiva of Brachfeld, and was about 12, 13 years old, and he asked one of the Bachram in the yeshiva, an older, like a younger man, to learn with him night seder. There was no real night seder, because it was mostly kolol. He asked him to learn with him. <coughs> it was late at night in Tel Aviv, so this younger man escorted Rebari Finkel home and, he, and the door opens up, and Chaim Zevi asks him, why'd you come so late? And he says, I was learning. He says, yeah, but on the price of that learning, you're going to miss davening. And who said learning at night is important? 
and and why that become the big of the Zara and the is arguing back and forth this was behind uh, the door closed door sort of and the person who was teaching was devastated what does it mean Reb Chaim Zev is discouraging him and uh, and he hired him he hired him to live with him at night so the next day he came over to Reb Chaim Zev and said I must apologize for eavesdropping but I, I couldn't help myself I overheard this conversation I, I don't understand it and he said why well, don't you understand he said he's growing up in Tel Aviv he's come to the age of rebellion and I'd rather he become the Frum rebel against the not from father than become the not from rebel against the from father. I want him to reach out and to break to the right instead of to the left. Um, that's, it's a very specific remedy, but understand the child goes to yeshiva and all of a sudden he may, he, he may be learning like crazy hours, he may be learning this and that. As long as the mashkiach has a daspe and so on, you need to find an environment that will inspire him, but not break him. To put a child into yeshiva that the average is beyond the child and the child can't make it there is bad. Is, is bad. To put him in a place that will not excite him, even to put him in a place that is quote-unquote balanced is not... He, he needs a place where he'll be inspired, where there's a Rebbe who pushes the kids. And you might even find the Rebbe to be somewhat childish, naive, young, but that's what the child likes. He wants somebody to say, you could be a chazanish. I'm telling you, there's no reason why I can't be a chazanish. Um, and he has to mean it. And, and, and uh, the, it, it's the phase that the child needs at that kufa. At the age of 20 or so, um, we hope the child reaches the age of being a bardas, where just like physically, at the age of 20, you hope the limbs kind of settle into a balanced proportion, where, where, where you know, the, the, the acne disappears, where, where the, 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 the hairs kind of form a beard or something, and so on and so forth. Um, and there is a tkufa when you need an older rav, an older person, a person who can put balance and so on into the child. It's part of his natural process and so on. But understanding that chinuch is goes through different stages, and I'm sure people who are more experienced and better will, will give you more detailed uh, phases. A parent needs to provide a genuine um, home model. In other words, Whatever you tell a child to do is discounted. Um, I, I'm sick, cute. I was once singing mirrors at my table, and my youngest boy was laying on the couch reading, which is, was usually what he did, does. And I told him, uh, you know, I, I, how are you going to know how to run a Shabbos table? And he told me, it's very simple. I'll sit up front singing mirrors. My kid will be laying on the couch reading, and I'll tell him, how are you ever going to know how to run a Shabbos table. Um, a, a, a child picks up the, picks up the, um, the, the, the atmosphere that's genuine. I have my own set of mirrors that I really like. My kids always kidded me about it. The Nagunim are kind of old-fashioned. They're kind of this, kind of that. And today, almost all of them, that's their standard mirrors. I, I assure you, I never ask them to do it. I never instruct them to do it. But the child naturally will come back. He has to, the environment has to be Emis, those things that a father, if a father will always be kovea say, they'll always sit down and learn, the child will feel, 20 years later he's going to feel it's wrong not to sit down and learn after the Shabbos table. If a person doesn't talk sports or politics or whatever it is that shouldn't be spoken at the Shabbos table, um, a child will feel it's not Shabbos-tick. Uh, if a father always goes to a minion whenever it's possible, he'll feel it's wrong not to go to a minion. 
if a father tells a child to go to Minyan, but he does not so makbid, he tells the child to learn, but he doesn't learn that much, he tells the child how important stock is, but doesn't give it naturally, it's not, it, 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 so the child learns that what's important is don't give stucker, but tell your child to give stucker. Remember that. You need, whatever you genuinely do, and, and, and is part of you, and is emiss, it'll come on to the child. The child may have misiones and not do it, but it, it's transmitted as a basis. The child needs to feel that you love him for what he is, you understand what his abilities are, and you understand his shortcomings, and you like him for what his abilities are, you're behind him, you support him, you don't expect a person to become a god like dog when he doesn't have those capabilities, but you're proud of the things he can do, and proud of the things he has done, um, and there's a circle which only you and him belong to. Um, uh, and no matter, and it's a long kufa, you can't judge the product by what's happening at one age. What you really want to know is when it's settled down and the dust is settled, where are we? Um, and that's the important part of Chinuch. With the first child, since he's so eager and everything is always kind of blown out of proportion, we tend to look at him at five as a finished product and expecting everything we expect. And that's why a first one gets a lot of attention, but a lot of tension as well. The Ishbitzah says the Bechor is always the Ben Asnua, because a person's frustrations are always with the first one. He was expected at the age of six to do Mishnayas, and, um, you know, the second one, you say, let, let him paint the sand, he's a little kid, what do you want from his life? So, it's a trade-off. First one gets a lot of attention, a lot of expectation, a lot of disappointment and frustration. But if a child asks himself, what can I realistically expect from a child? What are his tunis? What do I think he can do? And I should be proud of what he can do instead of being upset what he can't do. And like, you know, support him, love him. Imagine, picture yourself if your father's attitude to you was, you're okay, but you're not as good as so-and-so. That, that's, for a child, that's the most devastating piece of emotion you can project. He needs to have the sense that in his world, between him and his father, nothing else stands there. He's not one of five kids. There's a place for Ruvain, there's a place for Shimon, there's a place for Levi, Ishki Berchaso. Each one has his own world together with his father. It's a positive world with direction of, let me tell you how we can best do this or how best we can do that. Um, in, the, in the teenage age, it's a trickiest because on the one hand, the child is breaking away. On the other hand, down deep, he's hoping his parents be very proud of him. That never goes away. And um, it takes special skill how to deal with it. Generally speaking, the best thing is to find that mechanech, that demus, that person that, you know, have a goal of Malcolm Torah where the child picks up. And the child, for some reason, the father can be a lot brighter and a lot better than the malamit, and the, and the child will still idolize the malamit. It's normal. It's natural. At some someday when the kid settles and he becomes more balanced, things will click back in place and his perspective will become a lot more right than skewed. Okay.